Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, Micah chapter 5. Micah 5. Uh, so basically what you have is Psalms in the middle. Matthew, a little bit, you know, beginning uh, the New Testament. Micah's in between those two. Uh, that's... Um, that's why I don't want to give it to you. Micah chapter 5. We, we've looked at this before. But since we talked about how Jesus is king, which we just sang about in the Sovereign Grace song. Um, and uh, thought it would be good for us to continue that theme from an Old Testament perspective. That may be something that we do uh, as we look at gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Is actually go back into the Old Testament and see that uh, that's not a new concept. Um, so Micah chapter 5 uh, And uh, if you'll stand with me, we'll read the first six verses. I'm in Matthew 5, so let me catch up with you. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosanna, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. All right. I saw the M and thought I was in the right place. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Holy Spirit writes, uh, or Micah writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, and from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at his entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads into our borders. Let's go to the Lord. Prayer. Father, we ask as always, as we open up your word, that you would open us up and that you would transform us by the gospel as revealed by uh, scripture. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands, our mouth and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. See you. Uh, do you like to get good news or bad news first? Like, like if, you're, if you're going to get both, which one do you choose first? Are you the sort of person that says, well, give me the good news, right? And then so I can prepare myself for the bad. Or are you just, give me the bad and it's all uphill from there. I'm the latter. Give me the bad news. Uh, because now I know we are here and it's only up from there. Uh, much in the same way, whenever, whenever I go running, I will calculate my runs based off of going downhill more coming back than going. Uh, in fact, I'll choose a race. I'll, I'll look at the map and I'll look, okay, am I going up more in the second half or in the first half? Uh, I want to start with the bad and then go, go to, to the good. Uh, in fact, whenever we were kids, uh, this, is, this is still my, my motto that uh, I remember when first time I was on an airplane, went to Arizona with my brother and, of course, mother. And uh, mom knew we were going to fight over the window. 
And so she had set it up is the Otis gets to the window first and then halfway we'll switch. And then the next plane, the youngest will go to the window first and then halfway we switch. It seems reasonable. And, it, and I kept saying, no, let my brother have the window to start out because I want to finish with the, the window and I'm going to hog it too, right? Because then I can say, you had an hour and a half all to yourself, right? And so that, that's the way I think. I want to start with the bad and then get with, with the good. And if you read the minor prophets, they kind of function that way. They never start with, hey, everybody, guess what? Everything's going to be okay. But you're all going to suffer and die in the process. That's not how, how the books work. It starts with, you're all going to suffer and die. But don't worry, everything will work out in the end. It starts with the bad news and goes to, to the good. And Micah certainly uh, fits that sort of approach. It is, the book is dominated, particularly in the first four plus chapters, uh, saturated and smothered with bad news. Everything bad that could happen to Israel is going to happen to Israel. Uh, Micah's ministry coincides with Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. Thus, the political and cultural backdrop to Micah is, for the most part, the same with, uh, with them. Um, and Micah is appalled by uh, the injustice rampant in Jewish society. And, and this injustice they ignored because they thought so long as they had a booming economy and everything looked to be okay, everything was okay. If only I could think of a modern example that would fit that description. But I'm having a hard time thinking of, let's say, a superpower that on the surface has a booming economy compared to other nations and everything seems to be okay. Uh, but deep down inside, they are rotten. If you think of a good example of that, let me know. Uh, after the service. So what you get from Micah is his message of condemnation to Israel. For example, go over to chapter 2, just just to give you a flavor of of some of this. Chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So they can't even get out of bed before they start thinking about how to ruin someone's life. Uh, We call that social media now. Uh, When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. So these are empowered individuals who they wake up thinking how to do evil. And before the morning is over with, they've already done it. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. I just want you to pause there. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Can you think of a story in the Bible? For example, this would be in the Old Testament and what comes to mind of a king or a queen who desires a piece of property near the palace. They go to inquire of the piece of property, even offer to buy it. And the man says, no, this is my family's property. I have inherited from my father who inherited from his father, his father, his father, and I will give it to my son who will give it to his son. And so what the monarchy decided to do is simply kill the man and take it for themselves. Does that story sound familiar? Uh, the queen's name is Jezebel. She, she wasn't a very nice person. Um, and so what you have Micah saying is what you saw in Israel in a single moment, you are doing at a national level. You see the, the act of injustice, that the powerful and the wealthy are abusing their resources for their own benefit at the cost of those 
um, so, so uh, economically uh, below them. Verse three, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. And this is judgment language. He, he, he gives the indictment. This is what you have done. And then he gives the punishment language. This is to be expected that those who are guilty will, will be punished. And, and Micah does this over and over again. Let me give you another example of this. In, in chapter 3, he, he targets particularly the political and religious class of Judah. For example, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, he condemns the Jewish political leadership. In verses 5 to 7, he condemns the Jewish prophets. And then in verses 9 to 12, he condemns the Jewish priests. So chapter nine, uh, go to uh, chapter three, rather, verse nine. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come, or no disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded heights. Now, this is typical language of the prophets. That what you have at the societal level, as it breaks down, is it breaks down because leadership fails in its specific role. Kings should rule in righteousness. Prophets should speak in truth. And priests have a function of making an unclean and pure people holy and clean, pure. And they are all failing at those functions. They are driven by uh, um, uh, power. They are driven by wealth. They are driven by all of these acts of, 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 of injustice and oppression. And Micah comes to condemn it. By the way, reading Micah here in, in chapter 3 sounds a lot like Jeremiah. Again, I'll let you see if you can think of a modern example of this. Jeremiah 5, uh, who, who also foretold of the uh, coming destruction of Babylon, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the lands. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And here's the key. My people love it so. So, so, so I just pause and say that we rightly can condemn all the leadership stuff and rightly so. Because we have that problem now. But we also have a problem at the individual level that we are receiving what it is that we've asked for from our leadership. And uh, that is certainly a problem in, in Israel. Well, what you get starting in chapter 4, we won't read this, chapter 4, verse 9, is you get a series of three prophecies, and each of them start with the word now. So you see it there, chapter 4, verse 9, now, chapter 4, verse 11, now, and then coming into our passage, chapter 5, you see the word again, now muster your troops. The first two nows emphasize the distress of Judah. The prophet's main point is that God's plan of destroying Israel will not be thwarted. This is all bad news, isn't it? <laughs> it's just terrible, right? So Micah says, look, here's what's going to happen, uh, as, as we saw in chapter 3, is that Israel will become a wasteland. It'll be plowed by the enemy, just absolutely wiped everything. Everything you hold dear will be destroyed. And, and so he, he gives the series of now judgments. 
And so it is clear then that from Micah's perspective, God is angry at Judah. And the question we may have coming from this is, does this mean God has rejected Israel? And that is a serious question for the Israelites. After all, they've been reading their Bibles. They may not believe it <laughs> anymore, but they've, they've read it. They've grown up in the stories, and the stories are that Israel will forever be God's people. And here comes Micah and the other prophets, his colleagues, saying, actually, you need to know that God is about to wipe his people off the face of the earth. Because they associated the people with the lands. And God is going to just destroy the land. So they're thinking in their head, okay, if what you're saying is true, then are you saying God has just rejected us? And if God has rejected us, then what does that say about all those promises he made us? You see how this is a very serious text. It's a very serious prophet that, that you have here. And so you, you get over four chapters of just terribly bad news. Now, he says the answer to this problem is what Israel needs is Messiah. And so we transition from the bad news, coming destruction, to transitioning to the good news. This is very typical of the prophets. As if the prophets say, despite everything I've said is true, God hasn't abandoned you. And the way we know God hasn't abandoned you is the Messiah's coming, the son of David's coming. So we see that starting in verse one, which concludes really the bad news. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. It's interesting language, isn't it? Muster your troops, daughter of troops, emphasis, because you have the same word put twice, saying is that you have for so long trusted in your economy and your military, you think that you can never be destroyed. Well, I'll tell you what, trust in that. Get the economic machine to build you a large army and wait because they're coming. They're coming. Muster your troops. Sieged. Siege is laid against us. The enemy is coming, and they will lay siege of you. We know how the Babylonians did it. They went from one city to another, one city to another, just plowing over Israel until they came to Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. They are laid siege. Now notice this, with a rod, they strike the judge. I think that's a picture of the king of Israel on the cheek. Now, just, just pause there. I think we know enough, we've seen enough in movies, that to, uh, particularly in, 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 in antiquity and even uh, more recent past, to, to smack someone across the face is an act of humiliation. It's, a, it's really a, a, a climactic act of disrespect. To smack them across the face. What's, what's the old image? You, you get out the white glove, right? And that's a challenge to a duel or something. Is that Mighty Python? I don't know. But um, uh, right, we, we we're familiar with that. Now, I think what we have in our culture, we don't really do that anymore. Uh, we just may uh, write a strongly worded uh, Twitter post, maybe. But what we may do now that would may match that sort of humiliation would be like to spit in someone's face. It is to say that you are disgusting. You, you, you are, you, this is an act of humiliation. Now, that's the idea, is to strike the judge of Israel, the king of Israel, across the face. That is an act of humiliation. It's an act of disrespect. But notice there's an additional detail. You strike, not with the hand, but with a rod. So here you have not just humiliation, you have suffering. That's going to hurt. And so here it comes. You're going to muster up your troops, old daughters of troops. The siege comes, and what are they going to do? They're going to inflict humiliating pain. Everything changes in verse 2. With the great, the most significant theological word in the Bible, it is the word buts. Read Ephesians 2. You are by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, you'll find that, that theological but all over the Bible. And here's a good example of this. Everything he has said for over four chapters is true. 
But, in fact, this but is so significant that in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 5 begins in verse 2. It begins with the hope of that but. But, uh, um, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Verse two is one of the most significant verses in all of Micah, and it plays a significant role in the New Testament. What is, what is it that Micah is saying here? He is saying that God will save Judah in the end. Their salvation will not come from kings or princes or armies or uh, anything else like that. It'll come from an unlikely hero. Interestingly, uh, as I already said, this, this is the beginning of, of, of chapter 5. So Micah reveals, what's interesting is that Micah reveals the exact location of where this Messiah is to be found. Bethlehem Ephrathath. Now I have this theory that if it weren't for the nativity story, you and I would have no idea what Bethlehem was. It shows up in the Bible, but there's a lot of cities that show up in the Bible. You and I couldn't point it out on a map, nor could we probably pronounce the word when we came across it. Certainly not Bethlehem Ephrathath. Ephrathath goes all the way back to the genesis of the city of Bethlehem, at least where we first meet it in the narrative. It's in Genesis 36, 37, something like that. It, or not, I think it's 36, 37, starts Joseph. Um, in Genesis 36, Rachel dies. And she dies giving birth to Benjamin, the second favorite son of Jacob. And you remember that, that she dies, and she names him son of my sorrow. And uh, Jacob didn't like that name, uh, rightly so. It's a bad name. So he names Benjamin son of my right hand, which causes problems later because he's a favorite. And so they bury Rachel right where she dies in a town called Ephrathath, which is later called Bethlehem. That's the beginning of the city of Bethlehem. It shows up in the story of Ruth, of course, because uh, Ruth and, and Naomi, they go to Bethlehem. They, they, they build a life there in Bethlehem. That creates the, the line of David. And David is from Bethlehem. But Bethlehem begins as a city of sorrow. And here, Micah, using the Ephrathath title, um, he's connecting these two ideas. Story of Ruth, Bethlehem becomes a city of redemption. Story of Rachel, it's a story, story of sorrow. And here, Micah says they're both true. It is here in this land you will experience destruction and sorrow. But simultaneously, it will be a city of redemption. For this king, this ruler, will come, and you will find him in Bethlehem. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What, what does Micah say about this coming ruler? A couple things that are worth our time this evening. The first thing we see here is uh, we see his humility. His humility. Note the language again. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. He's just a little feller. Is a personification of the city. You are insignificant. Nothing ever comes from you. Yes, we understand King David, but you got lucky one time. But you are insignificant. And if it weren't for David, no one would know that you even existed. You are not anywhere on a map except for a sign that says birthplace of the great King David. Other than that, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So what we see is, is that this messianic ruler will come from the little town of Bethlehem. And this is why we get, in the nativity passages, the, the humility of Christ is, is paramount. He is born to an unlikely unmarried couple who are impoverished. We know that because they make the sacrifice of doves, which is what you would give to 
uh, the poor would give at the temple. He is laid in a feeding trough. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend that. It's just like we wouldn't do that today. When, when we had our first kid, and I think it's the first time we ever went to go see the in-laws. And I remember uh, my wife calling and says, where are we going to put our son, our little baby boy? And my mother-in-law says, oh, uh, we'll open up a dresser drawer. Now, we're millennials. You've never heard anything like that. Mom, we're not going to do that to our baby boy. Why? We did it to you. My mama did it to me. And so we ended up laying them in, in the dresser drawer. But, but it was all this, well, we, it's got to be really comfy and it's got to be really quiet. It can't be a creaking door and all this sort of stuff. Like that's about as low as we'll let our kids go. This is a feeding trough, a used feeding trough that he is laid in. And he is first visited, not by grandparents, not by a doctor, not by friends and family, but by lowly shepherds. Shepherds had no access to the temple but they had to supply the temple with lambs. And they couldn't go to the temple because they were busy working 24 hours a day. Everywhere they went, the sheep followed. So they were dirty, unkempt, and always outside of the city. And so these are the people who first gathered to see him. The rest of his life is one of humility. The incarnated God, as we saw this morning, had no house and no home. The eternal king was barely known outside of the city of Galilee. You think about it. If you were God and, and you had a good PR team, chances are you would come in such a, fan, a, fan, a fantastic way. Everyone in the world would know. You would make sure you had more followers on TikTok than, than, than anyone else. That's not what Jesus did. He primarily stayed in Galilee where hardly anyone in the Roman world even had a clue of his existence. And yet he changed the world. It's pretty incredible. So what do we see other than just his humility? We also see his divinity there in verse two. You notice the language there. Um, it, it says, um, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Uh, there's, there's several ways to read this that, that do get a little complicated. Your, your translation, like my mind, mine, says of, from ancient days. Your translation may say from the days of eternity. And it is debated which one is, is the right one. I think you can get to the same conclusion either way. But let me show you what's going on here. From ancient days is likely a reference to the reign of David because that was the ideal time. In fact, the, the language here is, is saturated with, with David language. That's probably what we're getting with the shepherd language as well. So David is, is the shepherd king. And so this person is going to come as the shepherd king. So he's from Bethlehem, from the city of David, and, and, and he is going to be from ancient days. So, so, so the, the Micah is taking us, as he's looking forward to this coming Messiah, he's actually taking us back to what the ideal individual will be like, except he's going to be that on steroids. So that's the ancient of days sort of, sort of ideas. However, the phrase ancient of days in the book of Daniel is a clear reference to uh, the divine. And so it could be, as Nasby has it, from the days of eternity, which takes us back to before creation. So this is clearly uh, divinity language. Either way, I think you can come to the same conclusion, that, that what separates this individual from David and Solomon, those, 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 uh, 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 the good old days, if you will, is that David and Solomon were mere mortals. Here what we have is God himself, the divine one, the ancient of days, who is coming to rule and reign. And, and, uh, and remember the context of all this. This should, this should be surprising, surprising to us. that he's, he's, he's saying God himself will come down to redeem you. 
But he has spent over four chapters trying to tell you God himself will come down and destroy you. Both are given in in this book. God will see to it that you are wiped off the face of the earth. God will see to it that you are redeemed. The God of one is the God of the other. Well, we get his humility, we get his divinity, uh, and thirdly, we get his royalty here in verse two. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to me among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Ruler in Israel. From the small time, small town of the tribe of Judah will come a king. Now, royalty from the line of Judah was not a new idea. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is given his prophecies regarding his sons. And to Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, but from between his feet. So it's not surprising. The idea that, that the Messiah would be king, we talked about this this morning from a New Testament perspective. From the Old Testament perspective, this is very clear. He will be of the line of David. He will rule and reign as David, yet his kingdom will know no ends. He will rule, he will reign. So the son of Judah will be a son of David. He will come from the ancient of days to deliver and to rule Israel in an age of peace and righteousness. He will be royal. Fourthly, he will be a shepherd. He is humble. He is divine. He is royal. He is shepherd. You have to go down to verse four to, to, see, to see that. Ever notice verse three, it speaks of a woman in labor, which makes sense in light of, of the nativity story. Verse four, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. This is clearly... Shepherd language. Now, now, to us, you know, we, if you know the Bible, this, this, this makes sense. But, but for those who don't, this is weird language because we don't associate shepherds with royalty. The Bible merges these two because shepherding becomes the, the model of a king. Perhaps the best example of this is, of course, David, but his most famous psalm. David as king describes God not as monarch, but as shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He could easily say, the Lord is my king, I shall not want. And you can imagine any king wanting to write that. If you want to know what God is like, look to me. I'm a king, he's a king. But rather, he, he says, if you want to know what God looks like, look at the shepherds. Look at them. What I gave up to become king. That's a step down in this sense. Look to the shepherds to know what, what God looks. And so the, a shepherd becomes the model of leadership, of godly leadership. So, so we ask ourselves, what kind of Messiah are we to look for? Well, he tells us here, it's not going to be an autocratic dictator whose throne is taken by force, but he comes as a shepherd. He is the true shepherd of Israel. He is the true and better David. And after all, think about it. There are two groups of people who come visit Jesus after his birth. Shepherds, magi. Ones who recognize their true shepherd, the others who recognize him as their true king. So Matthew and Luke take this imagery of the shepherd king uh, embodied in people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Jethro, Melchizedek, and David and merges them in. See, here's two different gospels. One takes the shepherd motif. The other takes the royal motif. And you put them together and it makes complete sense in light of the prophets in the Old Testament and all, all that sort of stuff. And what a contrast this is to the invading Babylonians. What is that you get? 
you get the autocratic dictator, you get the tyrant, you get the large army. And so here, here is Micah saying, you can muster your troops all you want to. It's not going to do you any good. They're going to come and they're going to slaughter you. It's going to be awful. But good news, Messiah will come and he will bring peace without the need of a sword. There is one glaring problem with this text. It is so glaring you're not even seeing it. One of my criticisms of Darwinism, evolution, naturalism, is that it it gives a long-term solution to an immediate problem. So let's say I'm a little animal, helpless animal, and all my clan, my species is being eaten by, by wild animals. And the only way for me to survive as a species is if I learn to fly. Darwin will come over, will come over and say, good news. In 3.5 billion years, you'll get those wings, you'll learn to fly. And I say, that is good news. There's one problem with that solution. I need wings now. My species needs wings now. We're being hunted down. We will cease to exist. Can we speed up Darwinism a little bit here? Of course, we call that Hitlerism. But anyways, um, um, that's, that's my beat, one of my many beats with Darwinism. Same thing happens here, isn't it? What's the context of this prophecy? The Babylonians are coming. They're going to wipe you out. And Micah comes and says, guys, I've got some bad news. I've got some good news. The bad news is you're all going to die. Here's the good news. You're all going to be okay. Israel's going to be okay. Let me tell you why. Messiah's going to come sometime in the future, and he's going to rule and reign in peace. And Israel's looking around here, and they're thinking, okay, great, Messiah's coming. That's wonderful. We kind of need him here before the Babylonians start shooting arrows at us. You see, Micah gives a long-term solution despite the immediate problem. Why is that so important for us to see? Because the Israelites, when Nebuchadnezzar is camped outside of the walls of Jerusalem, they are tempted to think that the solution to all of our problems is diplomacy. It's a powerful king. It's a well-trained army. It's more economics. Better trade deals with Egypt and others. We can solve this problem here. Micah comes and says, no, 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 your problem is deeper than that. Your politicians are corrupt. Your priests are greedy. Your prophets are liars. None of that's going to help you. No, what you need is forgiveness of sins. So from Micah's perspective, the greatest need of humanity is not political. It's not economic. It isn't even ritualistic. The greatest need of humanity is redemption. The question for us churches is, do we really, really believe that? I am good for us working hard and fixing temporary evils, whatever those problems and evils might be. That's good. Church has always been involved in that. Christianity has always been involved in that. But at no point should we allow those important things to cloud the most important thing. What we need isn't a bigger army or better politicians. What we need is a true and better David. What we need is a shepherd king. What we need is Messiah. And Micah tells us that we have him 
We have that in Christ. In fact, I think I can prove this to you. Go over to chapter 7 of Micah. Chapter 7 of Micah. So you, you, you start with the bad news, and the latter half is the good news. Chapter 7, verse 18. This is the conclusion of, or coming to, to the conclusion of the book. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. And he did that. Not through Hezekiah or Uzziah or Josiah, Zedekiah. Not through Zerubbabel, not through Hosea, not through Micah, not through through Isaiah, not through Jeremiah, not through any of them. He achieved this through his son, the Ancient of Days, the shepherd king who told his followers, my sheep hear my voice and know me. And this is how you know I love them. I lay my life down for the sheep. By laying down his life, he removes our iniquities because God's anger doesn't last forever but his grace does. Well, let us pray then. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to 